What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan. You and us. Welcome to the McCoy Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. Halloween is just around the corner, and we thought we would start a new little tradition here at McCoy Arcade, and that is to do a scary movie for Halloween every year. And what better way to kick off this new tradition than with arguably the greatest horror movie ever made. Uh, it's certainly one of the most influential, and it holds up to this very day, nearly 50 years later. Of course, we are talking about Garfield the movie, starring Bill Murray. <laughs> no, we're not. That's number two. Yeah. We're talking about The Exorcist from 1973, which is based on the book of the same name. Now, this movie is definitely before our time. We weren't even born in 1973, but throughout our childhoods, all through the 80s, this was always held up as sort of the like quintessential horror movie. And I want to talk a little bit about our respective histories with it. You... Just recently watched it for the first time. As I said, it's been such a, a pop culture constant and referenced so many times that you were definitely familiar with it and knew many of the scenes. But this was the first time you actually gathered the courage to sit down and watch it with me. How glad are you that you did? I am so glad. It's ridiculous. I had seen so many of the classic scenes and, you know, it's even been parodied a lot. So I knew much of the zeitgeist of the film and I saw probably a good third of it a few years ago, but I was not able to get through it when I was younger. Now, however, it was much less scary than I remembered it watching it this time, but at the same time, a billion times better than I realized. It's an incredible movie and it holds up beautifully today. I was honestly blown away by how good it was, just the quality of the filmmaking. I mentioned a million times on the show about how I've always loved horror movies and how that started at a very early age, but this movie is literally the start where that love actually started. I was five or six and my sister, who was like 12 at the time, had some friends over and they decided to watch a scary movie this movie I asked to watch with them. I was definitely the, the typical, like annoying younger sibling, always wanted to hang out with her and her cool other friends. Of course she said no, but not just because I was an annoying little brother, but because I was quote, a stupid little baby who wouldn't be able to handle the scariest movie ever made. I decided to prove her wrong and sort of watch from the hallway without her knowing. And I realized pretty quickly that I had made a terrible mistake. <laughs> the good news is they were all as terrified as I was. And by the time the movie was over, I was on the couch with all of them. We were all huddled together and all traumatized. When you watch this movie, I think it's so important to think about what it was like to have seen it back around the time it came out. Because at that time, there was just nothing else like this. Roger Ebert, in his 1973 review, he states... If movies are, among other things, opportunities for escapism, then The Exorcist is one of the most powerful ever made. Our objections, our questions, occur in an intellectual context after the movie is ended. During the movie, there are no reservations, but only experiences. We feel shock, horror, nausea, fear, and some small measure of dogged hope. 
He goes on to say, The Exorcist is one of the best movies of its type ever made. It not only transcends the genre of terror, horror, and the supernatural, but it transcends such serious, ambitious efforts in the same direction as Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. And and people literally did feel that shock and nausea, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were staggering out of the theater halfway through the movie. Like, for, I mean, it's funny to think about now, a movie having that effect on people. Back then, this movie was crazy, and... Here is some, I found some fun audio from a reporter doing a story who was at a showing back in 1973. The manager of the National Theater in Westwood says that there indeed are at least a dozen people who faint or become ill during every showing. I spent an evening in the lobby just to see if people really do come stumbling out in the middle of the picture as reported. They did, so I asked them why. It just scared me to death. Things just like this, just, it just scared, really scared me to death. Are you going to go back in and see more of the movie now? Probably, yeah. I fainted like 10 minutes after the first beginning of the movie. And I walked out and they gave me some water. I passed out. In, in about the first half hour, yeah. People passing out in the movie theater. Crazy. Now, the, the reporter goes on to talk about how a lot of these people waited up to like four hours in line to see this movie. That's how big of a deal it was and how much buzz there was around it. And despite the fact that they were just dropping like flies in the lobby, most said they went back to finish the movie because it was so damn compelling. It is so true. It is a compelling film. And honestly, for me in this day, you know, I I was not as scared as that. I didn't. And I'm a baby. You know that (laughs) I was not even covering my eyes much of the film. Uh, And according to Wikipedia, they actually did report this, that viewers suffered adverse physical reactions, fainting, vomiting, even heart attacks and miscarriages were reported. In fact, a psychiatric journal published a paper on, quote, cinematic neurosis, unquote, triggered by the film. Let's talk about the movie itself. Now, First of all, I want to say that between the two of us, we watched two different versions of this movie, the original theatrical cut and the director's cut. There's about 12 minutes more to the director's cut. The, the extra footage is kind of a mixed bag, um, but I think that is the one you should watch. That's the version we're basing this show off of. Apparently, there's a lot of tension between Blatty and Friedkin, the writer and director of this movie, respectively, over the cuts that the director made to the movie before its release. But then they worked together to release the director's cut in 2000. So it starts off with an archaeological dig in Iraq with a priest, Father Lancaster Marin, the titular exorcist of the story, played by Max von Sydow. Um, all right, I know we just said we were going to talk about the movie, but I feel like we need to pause for a moment and explain the concept of exorcists and exorcisms for those listeners who, unlike us, didn't spend nearly a decade of their lives in Catholic school and don't really know what they're all about. Basically, an exorcism is the expulsion of a demonic presence from a person who has been possessed through a rite conducted by a priest who would then be considered an exorcist, right? Exactly. In fact, in Catholic school in second grade, I think we have a six-week-long elective on exorcism. No, I'm only kidding. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) But let's talk about this exorcism rite. So the word exorcism derives from the Greek word for oath or power, ekousia. As religious studies scholar James R. Lewis explains in his book, Satanism Today, an encyclopedia of religion, folklore, and popular culture. This is a good one to keep on the coffee table if you want to frighten your (laughs) in-laws. To exercise thus means something along the lines of placing the possessing spirit under oath, invoking a higher authority to compel the spirit rather than an actual casting out. 
This becomes clear when the demonic entity is commanded to leave the person, not by the authority of the priest, but instead, for example, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or as we saw in this movie, the famous line, the power of Christ compels you. That's one of the the memified lines because I say it over and over. Mm Mm-hmm. In the Catholic Church, exorcism is what is referred to as a sacramental rather than a true sacrament like baptism or confession. It authorizes the use of exorcism for those who are believed to be the victims of demonic possession. Per Wikipedia, quote, unlike a sacrament, exorcism's integrity and efficacy do not depend on the rigid use of an unchanging formula or on the ordered sequence of prescribed actions. Its efficacy depends on two elements, authorization from valid and licit church authorities and the faith of the exorcist, unquote. There's some really interesting history that I read about while researching for this show. Benjamin Radford at LiveScience.com reports that the Vatican first issued official guidelines on exorcism in 1614 and revised them in 1999. The Roman ritual lists the following as indicators of possible demonic possession, speaking foreign or ancient languages of which the possessed has no prior knowledge, supernatural abilities and strength, knowledge of hidden or remote things which the possessed has no way of knowing, an aversion to anything holy and profuse blasphemy or sacrilege. And I think it's neat to, to read these because we see how masterfully these concepts are put to use in the film, right? We see exactly what they're trying to do then. In the 15th century, exorcists used the Order of St. Benedict's formula, Vade Retro Satana, Step Back Satan. But by the late 1960s, Roman Catholic exorcisms were seldom performed in the U.S. Moreover, since demonic possession, according to Roman Catholic teachings, is extremely rare and mental health issues are often mistaken for demonic possession, again, something that they really masterfully, beautifully play with in the film, the Vatican requires that each diocese have a specially trained priest who's able to diagnose demonic possession and perform exorcisms when necessary. Now, the exorcist, the story by Blatty was actually inspired by a real exorcism done in 1949, just outside of St. Louis. A boy who has been given the pseudonym Robbie Mannheim, if you want to look him up on the internet and read more about it, developed aggressive behaviors and eventually began to convince his family that he was possessed by an actual demon. As History101.com describes it, Quote, Robbie Mannheim was born into a devout German Lutheran family in 1935. In 1948, 13-year-old Mannheim began to experiment with his aunt's Ouija board. Since Mannheim was soft-spoken and awkward, his aunt was his dearest companion. When she died a year later, he was devastated. Mannheim saw only one way to stay connected to his favorite family member, through the Ouija board. Mannheim began to use the occult object to connect to his beloved auntie. Soon, the Mannheim family began to experience strange shifts in their household. At first, they began to hear peculiar scraping and stomping noises. Soon enough, otherworldly activity emerged, unquote. It goes on to describe... Quote, the once gentle Robbie became aggressive and unkind. At times, Mannheim would spew profanities and Latin at his bewildered family members. One night, his mother heard a noise, went to check on him, and discovered his bed rattling with him resting in the middle. His parents feared the worst. They decided to turn to the one force they always put full faith in, the church. His family enlisted the support of Lutheran Reverend Luther Miles Schulz. When he went to examine the troubled boy, he was greeted with moving furniture, noisy walls, and terrifying activity. Exhausted and afraid, Schulz decided to turn to a stronger avenue for an exorcism, the Catholic Church. Unquote. Apparently, the initial exorcism failed, but later on, two other priests performed over 30 rites, lasting for weeks upon end, and eventually, he was deemed cured. Wow. It is amazing how much of that we do see in this movie. So, after the 
Iraq excavation, the story shifts to the United States in Georgetown, where an actress named Chris McNeil is living with her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan. And they're living there while Chris films a movie directed by her friend, Burke. And strange things start to happen almost immediately. We find out that Reagan has been using a Ouija board, and she's supposedly made contact with someone or some thing, a new friend named Captain Howdy. Then things with Reagan start to get really crazy really fast. She starts saying all sorts of awful stuff. Uh, Her bed shakes to the point of almost levitating. She starts to exhibit behavior that leads her mom to take her to doctors who run all sorts of scans and tests, including a pretty gnarly spinal tap scene, right? That was, I think that was one of the, the scenes in the movie that really freaked out audiences back then and made them, you know, pass out. It really was. And it's sort of medically accurate. And just, you know, some people get faint at the sign of a needle anywhere, just seeing one. Yeah. Yeah, no, really graphic, really uh, intense. So one night, Burke, the director, is left to watch over Reagan while she's sedated and sleeping. And he ends up, quote, falling out of the window tumbling down the long outdoor staircase outside their place. A detective ends up telling us that Burke was found at the bottom of these stairs with his head turned all the way around, technically possible from the fall out the window and down the stairs, but highly unlikely. The inference, of course, is that a possessed Reagan broke his neck and then, you know, tossed him out the window. And finally, things get so out of control with Reagan that her mom turns to the church for help and it gets bad. Like she says and does some pretty intense stuff. It, it really is kind of shocking. And when I read about this, Blatty, the author, talked about the necessity of including these horrible, perverse, and really upsetting concepts uh, and images. On the 25th anniversary special edition, he says, quote, what on earth would drive Chris to consult a priest? What is the worst possible thing I could think of? Unquote. And what he thought of is pretty shocking. Yeah. Uh, her peeing on the rug during her mom's dinner party is like the least shocking thing she does in this movie. So we have Father Karras, who is played by Jason Miller, who, it turns out, is the father of Jason Patrick, who played Michael in her favorite vampire movie, The Lost Boys. He is arguably the character that's really at the heart of this film, right? He and his crisis of faith are central to this story. And he comes to see Reagan, and the story culminates with Father Karras and Father Marin performing an exorcism that ends with both of their deaths. Marin's heart gives out, and Karras invites the demon, Pazuzu, to possess him instead of Reagan and then sacrifices himself by jumping out that same window in her bedroom that Burke was thrown from earlier in the movie and he lands at the bottom of those cement stairs. Now that's a very brief rundown of the story, but when you, you know, spend a couple hours actually watching it all unfold, there is a lot to unpack in this movie. Totally. And one of the big questions we're left with is, how did it happen? You know, why did it pick this particular vessel? And it's sort of alluded to in the movie, but in the book, there is a scene with a medium who they bring over for a party. And she's feeling very uneasy after this gathering, where it's in fact where Reagan urinates on the floor. Who wouldn't be, right? But she says, quote, perhaps it could all be suggestion, but in story after story that I've heard about seances, Ouija boards, all of that, they always seem to point to the opening of a door of some sort. She goes on to say, quote, All I know is that things seem to happen. And my dear, there are lunatic asylums all over the world filled with people who dabbled in the occult. Unquote. I thought that was a chilling line and really powerful. So let's talk about Ouija boards. We had them as children. I think they were made yep. by Parker Brothers, right? I mean, they were with <laughs> yeah. the Monopoly game and Shoots and Ladders. Probably bought them at Toys R Us. Literally. Yeah. And what's remarkable, the story on these is really bizarre. So as part of the big spiritualist movement in the 1800s, mediums would use a whole bunch of different means to communicate with the dead. And there was a commercial parlor game businessman, this guy named Elijah Bond, and he had the idea to 
patent, a planchette, uh, sold with a board on which the alphabet was printed, much like the previously existing talking boards that were in wide use already. So there was sort of similar technology out there, but he had this idea for kind of a, I guess, a particular style of it. And he filed on the 28th of May, 1890, for patent protection, and is thus credited with the invention of the Ouija board as we know it. Charles Kennard, founder of the Kennard Novelty Company, which manufactured talking boards as well, claimed he learned the name Ouija from using the board and that it was an ancient Egyptian word meaning good luck. This is one of those cute little lies you could tell back in the old days, but it's much harder now. People will take you, you know, they'll call you on the carpet here. But later he popularized a more widely accepted etymology that the name came from a combination of the French and German words for yes, we, ya. Right, so we are, but we say Ouija. From a modern scientific perspective, the Ouija phenomenon is thought to be related to this concept called the ideomotor response, a form of unconscious involuntary physical movement, but they really do seem to be associated with lots of weirdness. And during the exorcism, Fathers Karras and Marin, the two priests, share this bit of dialogue about why Reagan was targeted in the first place. Karras asks, Why her? Why this girl? To which the more experienced Marin gives a fantastically profound answer. Quote, I think the point is to make us despair, to see ourselves as animal and ugly, to make us reject the possibility that God could love us, unquote. It sums up a primary theme of the exorcist, and frankly, it's brilliant. This scene, by the way, I just found this out, when Marin and Karis are sitting, you know, they're in the stairway talking, was not in the original theatrical cut of the movie the director freaking cut it out and that was apparently a huge point of contention between him and blatty the writer blatty saw this scene as absolutely central to the story and essential to the whole point of the movie but friedkin thought there was no need to actually have the characters you know spell all this out for the audience because it was so obvious i watched an interview with friedkin about cutting the scene out and he was just like we didn't need the scene because it was you know it just says what the entire movie has been saying this whole time, but he added it back for the director's cut. Personally, uh, I think it's a great scene and should never have been cut, even if what's being said has been implied. It's still such a great moment between these two characters. It really is. And, well, that brings us to the demon itself. From the amazing site, metmuseum.org, we can learn a little bit about the demon that presumably possessed young Reagan. They note, quote, an early scene from The Exorcist shows a human-sized Pazuzu statue on view at the site, and there's an uneasy expression on the face of the archaeologist priest as he gazes at it. Had it existed, the statue would have probably seemed archaic to the Parthians, a survival from an earlier period whose identity and meaning may have been forgotten as they are in the movie itself. The camera lingers on the backlit statue as the noise of a nearby pack of dogs fighting provides an atmospheric soundtrack for the demon's statue's canine snarl. The scene has been set. Pazuzu appears as a foreign, ancient, violently malevolent source of evil power, unquote. Whoa, it's such a great scene. Father Marin perched on that rocky outcropping directly opposed to the statue. It sort of pits them against each other from the very start. In this movie, we learn that Father Marin conducted a very long and grueling exorcism somewhere in Africa that nearly killed him. And apparently that was, in fact, this same demon that he fought because... When he shows up at the house in D.C., Pazuzu sort of feels and recognizes his presence instantly. It makes it seem like it's even possible that Pazuzu was actually waiting for him to show up. I have to warn everybody that this actually 
got me down some crazy deep rabbit holes. So I'm going to spare you too much, but I have to tell you a little bit about this. That same article I was reading from before goes on to describe a little bit about Pazuzu. And apparently this was a popular image in the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonia period. So this is around 700 BCE or so. In the ancient Mesopotamian religion, Pazuzu was the king of the demons of the wind, brother of Humbaba and son of the god Hanbi. He also represented the southwestern wind, which was the bearer of storms and drought. The name, interestingly written out in Akkadian, has a very interesting first character. It's called a dingir, and it looks almost like an asterisk that's sort of asymmetric. And I saw this when I saw it written out in this book. I thought, oh my gosh, I've seen this before because it is the Sumerian word for god or goddess. And this cuneiform sign is most commonly employed as the determinative for religious names and related concepts, and it's not pronounced. Generally, they put it when they transliterate it, transcribe it, they put it as a superscript D. So the dingir kind of denotes that it is a is a holy or, you know, basically a, a deity of some sort. So before Karis and eventually Marin shows up, Pazuzu, the demon, seems content to just terrify everyone, right? Just tormenting Reagan, uh, making her bed bang around, moving furniture. But once Karis and eventually Marin do arrive on the scene, it's pretty clear that it takes very particular delight in toying with them as men of faith, right? Especially Karis, who is vulnerable because not only is he questioning his faith, faith before all this even started, he just lost his mother, and Pazuzu really gets into Karis's head. He isn't just a priest, he's a psychiatrist, and he definitely first approaches this situation from that angle, right? And Pazuzu keeps him really unsure as to whether or not there's actually possession happening, or if he's just dealing with a severely mentally ill little girl. I mean, this really is one of my favorite concepts, and it's one of the key themes of this movie. And I would actually argue that for paranormal and occult phenomena in general, this idea is that it loves, or wait, even stronger than that, that it requires, it lives in the betwixt and between, right? This is this idea that the liminal is the very essence, and that uncertainty, that unprovability. And I absolutely delight in how they play with this. There are a couple of scenes that actually underscore this idea. First, it is stated outright. Father Marin warns, quote, The demon is a liar. He will lie to confuse us, but he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. His attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful. So don't listen to him. Remember that. Do not listen. Unquote. It's so good. Next is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. The demon makes the dresser drawer slide out, right? So, so this is telekinesis. Father Karen asks, Did you do that? And the demon sort of purrs, and then Father Karras says, do it again. And the demon says, in time, in time. And it's absolutely maddening because what I love about it is it's playing with that idea of one of the fundamental requirements for science, right? Which is reproducibility. By not doing it right away, it makes you question it. It's like, well, was it just a little weird thing? Like it sure mm. seemed paranormal, but what if it was, you know, something else? And that's kind of that magic space that it lives in. And in the book, it's actually even written more provocatively. They actually say, and the quote in the book is, in time, why we must give you some reason for doubt. Yes. Yes. So we really see what they're doing. And then, of course, one of the most famous lines is along very, very similar themes to this. Father Karras first meets the demon who identifies itself as the devil while tightly bound in the restraints. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm that devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. 
It's just so good. It's amazing, right? It's really amazing. And it, again, it causes us to question it the whole time. You're not really sure. And I think even the holy water scene where the demon was apparently tricked into acting or, the, you know, really Reagan, the little girl, was tricked into acting like holy water was burning when it was simply tap water. I think that was along the same lines to trick, to torment, to cause doubt. And indeed, in the book, a later scene finds the demon welcoming Father Karras back and saying, quote, I'm surprised. I would think the embarrassment over the holy water might have discouraged you from ever returning, unquote. And that's a great scene. You could tell Karras, like I said, sort of went into this situation looking to debunk it, right? He tells Reagan's mom that he just used tap water, but then later, during the actual exorcism, Father Marin comes armed with the real stuff, right? And we see it actually physically harm the demon he splashes it with holy water and it slashes reagan's skin which seems among other clues to make it i think pretty clear that this is in fact an actual possession agreed in a fascinating essay by brian riley called revisiting the exorcist the forbidden pleasures of resistant reading he writes quote but there are other ambiguous elements in the exorcist one example involves the plot level question of whether or not reagan's possession is authentic there are plenty of clues in both the novel and the film to suggest that reagan's transformation is the result of some kind of mental illness or hysteria possibly brought on by ambivalent feelings about her parents divorce resentment over chris's emphasis on her career and her friendship with dennings and other factors combined with the onset of puberty he goes on to say while these explanations are at the manifest level ultimately revealed to be red herrings possibly even part of the demon strategy to sow doubt and confusion much of this material is persuasive he points out that in fact the psychological explanation is what Karis, a psychiatrist as well as a priest believes for most of the story until well into the climactic exorcism scene initially convinced that there is no way reagan is actually possessed Karis considers exorcism only because he believes it could work as a form of counteracting suggestion. Remarkably, in a 1974 interview, director William Friedkin laid it out matter-of-factly. He said, quote, I'm not convinced that the possession was real. It was surprising to me how many people were willing to say it was possession and suspend their disbelief. I made the film in a way that it could very definitely not be possession. There are very clear-cut things in the movie that indicate that what you are seeing is always from someone's point of view and from someone in an extremely heightened state of mind. There are several explanations which the film leaves open, unquote. He goes on to point out, quote, another sort of ambiguity, one not often discussed, is created by the fact that in both the novel and the film, the ritual of exorcism, strictly speaking, does not work. Marin dies in the attempt, and Reagan's ordeal ends only when Karis challenges the demon to enter him instead, at which point he throws himself through the window and down the steps to his death, presumably taking the demon with him. I always took it as as it was, in fact, a real possession. I feel like visually the movie makes it seem that way. I mean, yeah, certain things can be chalked up to the heightened emotional states of the characters. But, you know, when a kid's head turns all the way around like an owl, I mean, that's pretty hard to explain away. It, it totally reminds me of, of Venkman's quote from Ghostbusters when he says, generally, you don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance. <laughs> Man, that's one of the really iconic like images and scenes in this movie and it still looks great the effects in this movie hold up so well to this day roger ebert notes the film is a triumph of special effects never for a moment not when the little girl is possessed by the most disgusting of spirits not when the bed is banging and the furniture flying and the vomit is welling out are we less than convinced the film contains brutal shocks almost indescribable obscenities that it received an r rating and not the x is stupefying 
The effects are such a huge reason why this movie became such a big deal. Reagan's head turning around, the green pea soup vomit. Apparently, Jason Miller, Father Karras, was told that it was just going to spray him on the chest, but that was obviously a big fat lie, and it just nailed him right in the face and the mouth. (laughs) So the revulsion that you see on his face in that scene is very real. There's another uh, sort of effects-based shot a scene that wasn't in the theatrical version that was added back into the director's cut. And that's when Reagan does the upside down spider crawl down the stairs, you know, Um, the really unsettling scene. There was no way to pull it off without using wires. And back in 1973, there was just no way to hide the wires. But in 2000, when they released the director's cut, they were easily able to just CGI them out. So we get this scene, this cool new creepy scene that was put back in the movie. The sound in this movie, we definitely need to talk about. It was amazing. Uh, it won an Oscar for it. Yes. Mercedes McCambridge was the voice of the demon. She recorded her lines in three pitches so they could be overlaid. And apparently they were adding in animal sounds as well. Charles Higgum wrote for the New York Times in January of 1974, quote, perhaps the most horrifying feature of The Exorcist is its soundtrack. Director William Friedkin and his experts use the cries of pigs being driven to slaughter to produce the scream of the demon when it is exorcised from the 12-year-old Reagan's body, unquote. The article goes on, to quote McCambridge, quote, So I cried out from my remembered hell, and when I spoke the scene in which the little girl spits out green vomit, when I made the ugly sounds of violent expectoration, I swallowed 18 raw eggs with a pulpy apple. To convey the feeling of the devil being trapped, I had the crew tear up a sheet and bind me hand and foot. Sometimes I was so exhausted and my circulation was so sluggish that I wasn't able to drive home. I stayed in a motel near the Burbank Studios. My voice was ruined. For weeks, I couldn't talk above a whisper. That is commitment right there. (laughs) And it paid off because it sounds incredible. This movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. I'm willing to bet that the the list of horror movies ever nominated for Best Picture is very, very short. And this is clearly just an incredibly well-crafted film, regardless of genre, one that just happens to be a horror story. And it's never been topped. It clearly inspired so many movies, and none of them have surpassed it. It's so grounded. It's so well-written. It's so real. When the director's cut came out in 2000, Roger Ebert said, I revisited The Exorcist over the years and found it effective every time because it's founded on characters, details, and a realistic milieu. The shocks don't date. They still seem to grow from the material. Yes. This movie's legacy is undeniable. It was such a big deal that it was parodied pretty famously in uh, Saturday Night Live's first season in 1975. You can watch the, uh, the skit on NBC's site. Richard Pryor is in it, and he's hilarious. When he and the other priest first walk into the house and they hear the demonic voice, Richard Pryor goes for the door, and the Father Marin character says, where was your faith, Father? And Richard Pryor's like, I left it in the car. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> it's fine. There's lots of funny little nods in the movie. Um, like we said, in the movie, Pazuzu torments Karis, especially about his dead mom. And there's one especially, you know, reprehensible line that he tells Karis in the movie. And it's parodied pretty famously in the SNL skit. Your mother sews socks that smell. <laughs> What did you say to the girl? Your mama so soft and smell. <laughs> <laughs> there are several sequels to this movie, to The Exorcist. The first being Exorcist II, The Heretic from 1977. Now, obviously, it's rare that a sequel to a classic film manages to match the greatness of its predecessor, let alone exceed it. But it does happen. We have Terminator 2, Empire Strikes Back, 
Aliens, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties, <laughs> the iconic sequel. Um, Exorcist 2 is not one of those movies. It is widely regarded as one of, if not the worst movie sequel of all time. And one of the worst movies ever made, like ever. It's so shockingly bad. I tried to watch it on HBO Max just so I could, you know, talk about it for this episode of the show, good or bad. I couldn't do it. Dude, I tapped out after like 20 minutes. And as you know, especially when it comes to horror movies, I am pretty easily entertained. It is somehow a worse sequel to a classic horror film than whichever Halloween movie it was from the early 2000s that had Busta Rhymes karate fighting Michael Myers. (laughs) It was a real movie. And this is so much worse than that. (laughs) Let's read some opinions on this absolute train wreck of a movie. (laughs) William Friedkin, the director of the original movie, said, I looked at half an hour of it and I thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. It was horrible. It's just... (laughs) This is the best line I've ever read in a review. This needs to be like the box quote. They need to put this on the poster or something. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy. The... (laughs) The way I love he's got to call the guy dumb, too. The worst piece of crap I've ever seen. Uh, our hometown guy, Gene Siskel, gave it zero stars. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't even know zero stars was a thing. But he said it was the worst major motion picture he'd seen in almost eight years on the job. And another critic, John Simon, said, there's a very strong probability that The Exorcist 2 is the stupidest major movie ever made. Wow. Holy cow. Oh, that's incredible. I would say it's so bad that you have to see it, but like you, you don't. You really don't. The Exorcist 3, though, from 1990, a full 17 years after the original movie came out, was written and directed by William Blatty, who, you know, as we said, wrote the original book and screenplay of the movie. He thankfully completely ignores the second movie with this follow-up, which is an adaptation of his 1983 book sequel to The Exorcist called Legion. And it stars the great George C. Scott as Kinderman, as the police detective from the original story. The actor who played Kinderman died a few years after the original movie, so the role had to be recast. And George C. Scott was a great choice. And he said this about the film. It's a horror film and much more. It's a real drama, intricately crafted with offbeat, interesting characters. And that's what makes it genuinely frightening. I really like this movie, and I definitely recommend it. It has maybe one of the best jump scares in horror movie history. I say definitely check it out if you like the original. Uh, it's a very cool sequel and a smart follow-up, but it obviously, you know, it's not the achievement that the original movie was. That movie ignited a love of horror within me all those years ago, watching it for the first time, hiding behind a couch. I was scared. I was terrified watching this movie, but I didn't stop watching. Like those audience members from the old sound clip who fainted, but still went back for more. I had to keep watching because for the first time, literally in my life, I liked it. I liked being scared by this movie. And on some level, I was enjoying the sense of fear that it was making me feel. And while I certainly didn't understand or appreciate all the nuances of this movie, everything that just makes it such a a well-crafted film, it was clear to me, even at such a young age, that this movie was something special, something very different. And here we are, nearly half a century later, still talking about it. This is a deeply philosophical, powerful and moving film. Yes, it's a horror film. But so much of it is the underlying psychological horror that even the most blatant frightening images pale in comparison to its id. There's a quote from the book that I want to leave you with. We mourn the blossoms of May because they are to wither. But we know that May is one day to have its revenge upon November by the revolution of that solemn circle which never stops, which teaches us in our height of hope ever to be sober 
and in our depth of desolation, never to despair. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.